The Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Checkpoint Software Technologies and Swish Data. Stay tuned for their message on cloud security. Today on Government Matters, new tech modernization goals for 2020. The Chief Technology Officer at the Small Business Administration tells you what's coming. Where the money comes from when the military needs it most. Two top Pentagon financial managers on moving money to the tip of the spear. And just weeks after this year's budget's done, it's almost time to start all over again. A preview of Budget 2021. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the weekend edition of Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Chief Information Officer at the Small Business Administration is on the move. NextGov reports Maria Rote will become the next Deputy Chief Information Officer of the United States. She'll replace Margie Graves. The SBA has a new administrator, too. The Senate confirmed Jovita Carranza this week. The agency already has big plans for modernization in the year ahead and wants to streamline processes for small businesses. Sanjay Gupta is the Chief Technology Officer at the SBA. Sanjay, welcome. It's great to have you back. What are your top priorities for modernization in the coming year? Thank you for inviting me back again here, Francis. So really the three key priorities for modernization in 2020 are improving customer experience, and that's paramount. Number two, it's about helping use data to drive decision-making and evidence-based policy-making. And lastly, but not the least, is about use of automation, which will help us move our workforce to higher value-added work. And all of these three priorities are aligned with the president's management agenda. You anticipated where I wanted to go, which is that's exactly the, the three key pieces of the PMA. Did you have to do anything differently from what SBA was already doing to align to the PMA? Or were you kind of already headed on those tracks? Actually, as you know, we out? have been already headed on those tracks, but for this year, we wanted it to be more specific. Mm -hmm. We wanted it to be more deliberate. And like I said, customer experience is certainly the number one priority for us. In the move from lower value to higher value work, what types of automation processes are you looking at? I imagine RPA is one, but I imagine it's also not the only one. It is true, and but more importantly, I think what we're also trying to do is bring in digital workflows. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes our workflows and our business processes start with paper, and we are trying to avoid using paper to as a start of a business processes. So we're going to be starting business workflows in a digital fashion so we can carry the business workflows digitally and that'll allow us to improve our cycle time and responsiveness to the customers and our citizens ultimately. And I, as you as you alluded to, I see a connection there to the first one you mentioned, which is customer experience. I can't think of a single small business owner that loves the idea of starting the process working with SBA by filling out some form. Yes, and that has been uh, quite a challenge. And I've heard from many of the small business entities and entrepreneurs of how tedious that work is. And so we are working feverishly to help reduce the burden on them by using <clears throat> digital processes to start the business process workflows. How do you communicate <clears throat> with small business owners or potential small business owners that are coming to SBA for help to understand what 
they want, what their expectations are of a good customer experience as opposed to what you think it, it's going to be? Right, a good question again. Uh, typically, we have our program offices who interface with the small businesses. We have resource partners. Uh, we have small business development uh, co uh, companies. And uh, we have women's development um, um, resource partners as well, which help bring together the voice of the small business uh, company or the entrepreneur which allows us to then take that input and drive our decision making. Uh, I've note here about something called login.gov. Tell me what that is and what it, what it will do. Yeah, uh, one of the things that uh, our small business uh, entities have faced is multiple user IDs and passwords. They interact with multiple systems in the SBA and part of that they have to create multiple user IDs and passwords. So as part of our first priority of improving customer experience, we are implementing what's called as the SBA Connect platform which allows them to create a user ID and a password one time, and then allows them to use the same user ID and password across multiple SBA systems. And that way, it'll help them improve the customer experience. So login.gov is basically a shared services identity management system which GSA provides. So we've used that as our identity management system, and we're using that to deliver our SBA Connect platform. Will someone who creates an, uh, uh, an account through that be able to use it in other agencies too, or is it something they'll just be able to use with SBA? Actually, that is the intent of the G GSA Shared Services, is that once a entity has uh, used login.gov to create a user ID and a password, they should be able to use that across the federal government. So it's just not SBA that's going to benefit from it, but other federal entities also should be able to benefit from that. And gets right to the customer experience thing too because the complaint that just about every agency hears is that you've got to create a separate account or a separate identity with every single organization or even within <coughs> one agency, separate organizations within one Correct. for everything you want to do. Yeah, and the more other important aspect of this is protecting their identity. One of the aspects of when you have multiple user IDs and passwords is oftentimes you end up being a little sloppy in how you manage your user IDs and passwords. But once you have one, and this is by the way allows what's called a multi-factor authentication. So it allows you to be more firmer in protecting your identity and across the use uh, in the federal government. How will you manage, how will you measure success in all of these efforts, Sanjay? Not just the individual programs we've talked about, right. but just at, at the end of 2020, how will you look back and say, yes, we've accomplished what we set out to do, or yes, we're serving the customer better than we were back in January? Uh, another very good question. I think uh, an indicator of this is going to be how we see our small business entities and it's roughly about 40 million of these small business entities that work with SBA, uh, their feedback in terms of, are they seeing a discernible difference? Uh, we're hoping that they will notice that discernible difference in the way they interact with SBA, the cycle time reduction in the way they see the services from SBA, the improved cybersecurity posture that they are able to rely on with working with SBA, and the fact that they are able to see better uh, visibility into the status of what their applications are with the SBA. I think those are going to be the indicators which will allow them to see, yes, we have made a, a measurable impact there. Sanjay Gupta, thanks very much. It's great to have you back. Thank you. Up next, moving money to the tip of the spear straight ahead on Government Matters, paying for whatever happens in the Middle East. You're watching ABC7.
Welcome back. Rising tensions with Iran are driving talks of more spending on defense and how to pay for unexpected operations. Here to break down how the Pentagon approaches defense spending and sharpening the tip of the spear, Tina Jonas, senior advisor in the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. She was under Secretary of Defense Comptroller in the George W. Bush administration. And Mike McCord, member of the Commission on the National Defense Strategy. He was under Secretary of Defense Comptroller in the Obama administration. Friends, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on. Tina, I'll start with you. What are the mechanisms that you would follow as comptroller when something comes onto the radar screen that neither Congress nor an administration anticipated? Well, immediately you start looking at available internal funds, perhaps a, a immediate reprogramming if that's possible. Uh, our operations tempo is largely going to be affected. Uh, the movement of troops uh, is associated uh, with the op tempo and the operations accounts. So you would look immediately to that. Uh, depending upon the level and timing of the effort and the activity, you simply have to go to Congress and talk to them about uh, what the opportunities might be in terms of expanding the budget. Mike, what's that process like? Is it going to appropriations? Is it going to authorization? A combination of both or something else? Yeah, you would, you would go to the defense committees and Tina and I both had a prior life on a defense committee before we were in, in the Pentagon, so that relationship's important. Um, I'm confident that today the department doesn't have the answers to the questions that it would need to take to those committees and ask for more money. What are those questions in, in any uh, situation? It's, okay, it's going to be how many troops doing what exactly? Are they, are they sitting in Kuwait as, as a deterrent? but not actively you know, operating, or are they doing more than that? How long are they going to be there? What's the active reserve mix? Uh, those are some of the basic things. And I don't believe the Pentagon or our old office in Comptroller probably could answer those questions today. Where do you go, Tina, to get those answers? From who and from where in the building? Well, you're always engaged with the services. Uh, the, the Joint uh, Chiefs obviously have a big input there. So you, you are having constant conversations with those that are going to be deployed. Um, it's, it's just a continuing conversation. What do those conversations usually sound like? What are the questions beyond the, the high-level questions that you laid out, Mike? What are the things that the authorizers and appropriators are asking, at, not just at the, the comptroller level, but throughout the rest of the, the contingency that comes from DOD? What do they want to know before they'll agree to say, okay, you can move this from that to there? Well, I mean, I think the active planning, you know, there are many operational plans already laid out, uh, but the immediate and operational planning is left to the services, uh, and the chiefs are really engaged in that, as the joint chiefs in particular, and the combatant commanders. They are central to this. So um, you just have to have that ongoing conversation, and as, they, as the comptroller's office gets information, and begins to flesh out and analyze what the requirements are going to be on the immediate term, uh, then they engage Congress typically. Uh, in my experience, we would engage as pretty much consistently uh, throughout the day, and especially during a crisis time, you, it's just a constant conversation. So um, the, the Pentagon lays out what it thinks it needs to do, what it is currently doing, and then there's an engagement uh, with the Congress. The questions can be you know, across the board. Um, but it's very difficult to know, especially in a crisis circumstance, 
particularly what the length of the engagement might be. So it's just a constant dialogue, I would and say. Francis, I'd add that the, the joint staff is, is a key player in this as well because they've got good visibility on the, on, on the orders from the, the president and the secretary and you know what the mission translates to. And they've also got a resourcing arm that works closely with Comptroller to try and get the assumptions that help you answer the questions. Um, but I think the, the committees on the Hill are also, they, they're going to want to know what the mission is, right? I mean, that's first and foremost. So a lot of that falls on the senior leaders that were over, I believe, in the last day or two, briefing all members. And obviously, Tina and I were not in that briefing. But so how well are the questions answered in that briefing, you know, helps set the tone for the money that follows. And if I could just step back for a second, um, we're all old enough to remember the model prior to uh, the all-volunteer force was if you were going to war there was a draft and that was its own forcing function for a president to go to the Congress and gain public support and the trade-off we've made now as a nation for having the highest quality military that we've ever had is we don't have that anymore mm -hmm. right so since the end since the end of the draft era we've had this model that we have followed for the big conflicts that, that have arisen desert storm and then and then Afghanistan and then Iraq which is, you know, there's, if, if there's a crisis, the president makes the case, Congress votes to authorize force, the conflict begins, and then, the, and then a supplemental follows. So the money was the last step, not the first step. And since we don't have that yet, we don't have an authorization, the money's kind of the wrong place to start, I would argue, at this time. If, if, if things stay kind of where they are now, where the forces over there are not engaged in hostilities, I think there's time to figure it out for Comptroller and other actors to figure this out and, and solve the money part a little later in the year. And if it turns into conflict before there's an authorization, the, the, the situation is so scrambled completely from what it is today that funding the deployment that was just ordered will be a moot question overtaken by events because it will, the problem will have changed quite a bit. A quick final thought from both of you. I'll start with you, Mike. Wh how do you go about analyzing where in the lines that already exist might be okay to move money from and put back later in a crisis situation like this? I, I think both of us had experience with you're looking at the operating accounts first. That's the, the easiest and they're the most legally flexible and, and the largest accounts in the department's budget as well. Tina, that your experience as well? Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's really about the op tempo. And so I would agree with Mike and, and I know that the Pentagon is going through a lot of busy time right now. What will you watch as this moves forward? Well, I think the key thing is how long do, uh, does the Pentagon believe that they're going to be engaged and at what level? Uh, and again, that dialogue has already begun with the Congress. Uh, it's been quite uh, vocal, and, uh, but I think at a, at a more uh, calm level, there are many levels of planning going on, and I know that deep engagement is going on. Tina Jonas, Mike McCord, thanks both very much for your insight. I really appreciate Thank it. You. Thank you, Francis. Up next, the season that never really ends in Washington. Straight ahead on Government Matters, a few weeks after Congress finalizes agency budgets, it's time to start all over again. The Federal Beat is next. Welcome back. The Trump administration says it will deliver its 2021 budget request February 10th. The Office of Personnel Management is stopping work on one of its modernization priorities. You get a look at both issues on the federal beat with Tony Bertuca, chief editor of Inside the Pentagon, and Eric Katz, senior correspondent for GovExec. Gentlemen, welcome. Tony, I want to start with you. The 2021 budget request coming February 10th would be one of the earliest in the Trump administration so far. What do we know 
about what uh, should be in that document. So here's what's important to keep in mind. The FY21 budget request is the last year of the Budget Control Act. So people are celebrating. Oh yes. my gosh, that's the best. Uh, the final year of the Budget Control Act. Um, but also it is the second year of a two-year budget agreement. So that budget agreement put defense spending at FY21. The request was $738 billion total defense spending. That's some Pentagon, some Department of Energy, lots of defense-related spending. The FY21 number, so FY20 was 738, the FY21 number is 740.5 billion. That's what was agreed to in the deal. So when you factor inflation into that, that is a cut in real buying power mm -hmm. to the Defense Department because according to 2% inflation, FY21, it should be around $752 billion if it were to be a flat budget. It's not flat, mm -hmm. it's a reduction. Yep. So the Defense Department is going to have some pressure on its program this year for weapons spending and operations and maintenance spending to figure out what they're doing. Your colleagues at Inside Defense reported on this back and forth between the Office of Management mm -hmm. and Budget yeah. and the Department of the Navy about how you count ships, yeah. what you count toward the 355 ship fleet, how fast you can get to it. I imagine we, now that we know this, mm -hmm. that that uh, it helps us understand why that back and forth Absolutely. is going on. Absolutely. So here, here's what experts expect to see. They expect to see cuts to force structure in exchange for modernization investments. And when you look at what uh, leaked out from the O&M, uh, the, the OMB passback guidance to the Navy, that's what you see. Mm -hmm. There's a back and forth about, well, we want to cut cruisers and put more money in other things. Um, it'll be interesting to see how Congress responds to all of this because Congress has the final say. Lawmakers do not like cuts to weapon programs with constituencies in their districts. So that's definitely where we're going to see it. But uh, we shouldn't forget the Defense Department's also running a major efficiencies drill on the so-called fourth estate. These are the civilian management agencies that Secretary Esper says could probably cough up lots of money to put into the so-called tip of the spear. We'll see how it goes and how much money they find. He claims they found about $5 billion. Uh, that has to be vetted still. We'll see. Eric, I'm going to guess when the budget request comes out from the White House, you're going to look first or early at the OPM budget, what's in there. You're following a story now that OPM is backtracking, kind of, on an effort that it undertook not too long ago. Tell me what's happening there. Yeah, so early on in the uh, Trump administration, they had a priority to make every federal employee have a electronic digital record, the personnel record that would follow them seamlessly um, throughout their federal career would show any information related to their uh, jobs that they've held in federal government. Uh, but now they've um, announced uh, sort of quietly in, in a uh, uh, performance metrics that they put out uh, every so often that they're no longer pursuing that uh, path and they're, they're putting off that project indefinitely. Why is, the, why is that project on hold for now? Is it a technology problem? Is it a budget problem? Is it a management problem? Maybe all of the above? Probably all of the above. Um, they're not giving a lot of details right now, so it's a little bit of speculation. I think uh, we're seeing it's just sort of a, not a priority is, is what's happening. Uh, you know, this was something that was pushed by the first OPM director, Jeff Pond, who was unceremoniously let go from that position. Uh, so I think they've just sort of shifted away from you know, what he was pursuing to you know, what the new leadership is, is looking at. The broader issue here, it strikes me, is that this is something that OPM's taken a couple of cracks at over the last decade or longer. They've tried for a long time to modernize the way that they keep employee records. Right now, it's still, as you know, big files, mm -hmm. paper files in, in a cave in Boyers, Pennsylvania, 
does it sounds like we're back to Boyers for the time being. Yeah, we're we're back to that. We're back to uh, um, systems. You know, when it is sort of uh, in a modern, more modern system, that they don't communicate with each other at different agencies. So that's what makes it hard for when an employee goes from one agency to another. And uh, but you know, the OPM says that they have made some progress, and if they want to get back to this, you know, all of that work won't be for nothing. They'll be able to sort of build off that, so we'll see if they pursue it again. That's progress over what we've seen in the past, because in the past, essentially, uh, previous OPM uh, organizations have said, we just, this isn't just going to work, and they've moved on. What's coming, in your view, in 2020? What are the things that you're following, broad themes, as the year begins? Well, one thing we definitely have our eye on is uh, the I think in the last budget, um, they talked about their need to overhaul uh, all of the way federal employees are compensated. And they're conducting this review right now that they expect to put out in the next few months. Um, so we're definitely going to take a look to see if the budget addresses those sorts of reforms um, and uh, you know where we're, we're going with some of these reorganization efforts and how they're going to pursue, pursue that, because some of that has been stymied by Congress. Tony, big ideas you're following for 2020? Um, there's still a chance the FY21 budget gets very interesting. Uh, we talked about some of the potential cuts and things Congress might react to. There's a chance that some people might say the defense budget is too low and we need to reopen up the budget uh, agreement, even though it's an election year and not a lot of people want to do that. There's new tension in the Middle East, the standoff with Iran. I'll keep my eye on that. And I think also next week we might see some acquisition reform initiatives announced by Ellen Lord, the Pentagon acquisition chief. Tony Bertuca, Eric Katz. Thanks both very much. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. You can get a preview of every one of our programs by signing up for our daily program guide. You just text GOVMATTERS to the number 22828. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and next Sunday morning at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. The Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Checkpoint Software Technologies and Swish Data, presenting this message on cloud security. I'm Government Matters Director of Content, George Jackson, here again with Sean Applegate, Chief Technology Officer at Swish, and Jeremy Castleman, Cloud Security Specialist at Checkpoint. Sean, give our listeners some best practices for achieving a consistent security posture in the public cloud. Absolutely. So in public cloud, we have many different cloud providers. They have different security controls and mechanisms. To be able to control those in a single agency, we want to be able to gain visibility into your assets, your inventory and your cloud environments, those different components, if you will. Using Checkpoint Dome 9, this allows us to assess and gain visibility across all of your cloud environment and their controls. It also allows us to run some quick remediations against the NIST policies to make sure you're compliant and easily report on those so you know exactly where you're at to start with. Hey, Jeremy, he touched on this a little bit, but what about regulatory compliance challenges here? What do you see as potential hurdles? Well, it is a tremendous challenge. Uh, it's at the forefront of most of the conversations we have today. Not only do you need to ensure compliance of your internal security policies, but you also have to meet those regulatory compliance standards, like Sean mentioned with NEST or PII. With Checkpoint's Dome 9 solution, we have a full inventory of your environment and how everything is configured already, 
So it's simple for us to go ahead and provide NIST compliance rule sets, for example, right out of the box. Our experts will keep those rules up to date for you, and you can simply run your assessment on your cloud platforms, and it provides you the full audit-ready report. Okay, so Sean, let's talk remediation. How should these agencies respond if they, say, fail a compliance assessment? Yeah, there's really two ways to approach that. One, take the report in Dome 9 and use the step-by-step -step directions provided, so the just-in-time education to correct those findings. Or two, leverage the technology to do auto-remediation. So as soon as you make misconfigurations or skip something, it'll take the actions to correct that. And lastly, the tamper protection capabilities really protect your administrators and those privileged accounts so that third-party hackers can't get access to those and masquerade as them in the public cloud. So again, use the reporting, the auto-remediation, and the tamper protection to protect yourselves. Great information. Sean, Jeremy, thanks for being here. For more, head to govmatters.tv slash swish. I'm Government Matters Director of Content, George Jackson. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.